This call is being recorded. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to the Royer Cooper uh, Opportunity Zone update call for May 1st, 2019. Um, we're excited about this call primarily because the government, uh, which, which had been kind of dragging its feet a little bit, issued some new proposed regulations to fill in a lot of the holes and solve a lot of the uh, investor uncertainty in investing in opportunity funds. So um, the big topic for today's call is just that, kind of going over the new proposed regs, the answers they, they provide and how that might affect deals and, and, uh, and you know, make what transactions possible and what transactions a little bit more difficult. Um, you know, it's such a big topic, we'll probably start going over it today and we probably will continue to talk about this in some form for the next few weeks. But, uh, but again, today, you know, we'll at least provide the first big questions from, from the proposed regs, you know, our initial reactions, and we hope you all can join us on future calls where we'll dive more into the proposed regs and more into kind of discrete issues related to the proposed regs. Um, just to back up a second, my name is Dustin Cavello, tax lawyer here at Royer Cooper. I'm joined here by Leila Vaughn, my tax colleague at Royer Cooper. Um, <clears throat> we did also put out a client alert for the uh, kind of describing the proposed regs. That's up on our website at uh, rccblaw.com backslash QOF client alert uh, dash 42919. But we can send that around after the call as well because that link's a little clunky. Um, finally, uh, I guess two things that we're asking our audience today. One is, you know, if, if anything pops up in terms of questions during the call, please, please, please send us your questions at oz at rccblaw.com. That's oz at rccblaw.com. Um, we'll try to reserve some time at the end of the call to, to answer those questions. Um, or, you know, alternatively, we might make them a topic for a future call. And if there's anything else you all want to hear about in terms of the marketplace or in terms of tax structuring or other legal issues or, or anything really, um, related to opportunity zones, please send that to us as well. Um, you know, we can tee up those those types of issues for future calls, and uh, and you know, give give our audience what they want. So we'd be excited to do that. Um, I think that's it for housekeeping. Uh, so um, I guess let's kick it over to Layla and just talk. You know, generally, I guess at first, you know, what are what are our reactions to the, to the new proposed regs? Um, you know, what do they provide? And and let's go from there. Sure. So the new proposed regs, in general, were intended to be pretty taxpayer friendly, and they they do mostly uh, come across as taxpayer friendly. Although, just like with the last set of proposed regs, they raise new questions and require careful consideration in terms of how you ultimately structure your transaction. Um, and so, you know, we're seeing sometimes not not always the same structure working for each deal based on the options that we get under these new proposed regs. Yeah. Um, and I guess intentionally kind of vague, but I guess related to that, right? We get questions just, you know, from a process perspective, what do proposed regulations mean? Um, you know, one of the one of the criticisms on the program has been, well it seems like the IRS has been, you know, uh, issuing new rules quite frequently and still not answering all the questions. So now that they're issuing yet again another set of rules, like what does that mean for my deal? What does a proposed reg mean? So can you speak to that a little bit? Sure. So 
In general, for the most part, you can rely on what the proposed regulations are saying when you're doing your deals, um, both sets of proposed regulations, but you have to rely on them consistently. You can't pick and choose which provisions benefit you and which provisions you think uh, you know, you're going to assume aren't going to become final and you'll just disregard. You have to either accept them wholesale or, um, you know, operate outside of them and not expect to have the benefit of them. And then there are, within especially this latest set of proposed regulations, there are some limitations on what you can rely on. For example, you can't rely on um, things that relate to the exit strategy for a fund. Anything that's happening 10 years down the road, the IRS, or Treasury rather, is saying, you can't rely on this because there's 10 years before it comes into effect, which is a little bit difficult to deal with given that you're structuring with an exit in mind. So we really want to be able to rely on it. That said, the general intent was to facilitate um, you know, business-friendly, taxpayer-friendly investments in the zone that will actually work from the standpoint of you know, typical economic field. It wasn't an, the intent to make this unusable. So I think we can get some comfort from that at least. Yeah, so if you if you do a transaction, if you set up an opportunity fund or do a related deal and you like the rules in these proposed regs, you know, it's not like the government's going to come in later and say, well, those rules don't really count. You know, by the time we went to final regulations, we changed them. You can rely on them as long as you do the deal in the interim. Um, you know, if you don't like a rule, there's a possibility that it'll change later in the final regulations. So, um, you know, it really is taxpayer favorable, the fact that you can rely on these right now and, uh, and, and do your transactions, you know, even if the rules continue to change and, and you know, in a way that is adverse to a taxpayer, you're not going to be kind of uh, whipsawed by that. Right. And for the most part, um, you know, people are starting to get comfortable with the rules that, at least in certain transactions, they can now proceed. If they were waiting on some clarity, these are these regulations gave a lot of taxpayers enough clarity to move forward with comfort. Yep, yep. Okay, so I guess uh, you know some other big picture principles from the from the rules. Um, people sometimes forget that opportunity funds aren't solely real estate. Uh, uh, investment funds. They can also be set up to, you know, own and operate or invest in, you know, businesses that do things other than real estate, you know, um, manufacturing, service businesses, whatever. Um, and I think the, the rules that they issued this round really fill in a lot of the gaps on, you know, what types of businesses could qualify for that and, and how an opportunity fund would actually invest into an operating business too. Um, so we'll, we'll circle back on that. But, um, but that's you know helpful in terms of imagining how how broad an opportunity fund you know really can be and getting creative on you know businesses that would otherwise operate in or near a zone can can benefit from these rules too. Um, so jumping around a little bit, you know we're not really following uh, necessarily the the order of the proposed regs or necessarily even how they fall into you know the general opportunity fund rules. Um, really, what we're doing on this call is trying to pick out some of the big picture issues that, you know, investors have been worried about. 
um, and, and we're going to start with those. So I guess, you know, from that perspective, one of the biggest questions that, that we've seen relates to, you know, kind of uh, refinancing real estate inside of a fund and taking the distributions from, from the uh, refinancing proceeds. So, Leila, do you want to talk about that and how that plays in terms of the regulations? Sure. This is one of the most common questions I get. Can I, you know, bring in the the rollover cash to make the investment, build the construct a new building or renovate the building, then go to the bank, refinance, and pull out cash using the debt that I just uh, that I just took out. And typically, you know, if, if your construction is taking a couple years to do. Um, that actually works out just fine under the regs. What the regulations allow is a distribution that does not exceed the partner's basis in the partnership. And typically, unless there's some guarantee at play, each partner will get their pro rata share in the debt as an increase to their basis, and then they'll get a pro rata distribution so that their the debt basis is sheltering that distribution. And and Treasury said that that works, but there is a limitation on that. So the, the limitation effectively says that if you take that distribution out less than two years after contributing the rollover gain to the fund, that will be presumed to be um, essentially a, an invalid contribution to the fund. It, it won't qualify for the QOZ regime. In addition, if your contribution has not been um, exposed to the entrepreneurial risk of the business, which would be an instance where you're getting cash out before you've started construction, for example, you have a, a pretty big concern there that you haven't really made that initial rollover investment because the economic risks weren't taken by the investor. It was ultimately the bank that took the risk if, if the debt and cash out happens too quickly. Yeah, yeah, and one of the keys you said, again, I mean, you know, those are important exceptions, but, you know, most uh, standard kind of real estate deals are, are probably not going to fall in those exceptions. Right. Um, one of the keys you said was pro rata. So if, you know, an opportunity fund investor invests for, say, 20% of the equity and, um, you know, receives a disproportionate amount of the refinance proceeds to maybe buy down to 15% of the equity, you know, that, that looks a lot like a sale, right? And that, that's another reason that that could, could disqualify the, uh, the, at least the 5% investment mm -hmm. in the opportunity fund. Um, um, so that's a big issue. We have a lot of investor comfort there, which is which is nice. But again, you know, each each transaction really ought to be looked at carefully because some of these two-year presumptions and entrepreneurial risk-type issues that that Leila mentioned, you know, they get a little uh, nuanced. Um, but standard real estate deals, you know, we do have comfort that that are likely to work in, in nearly every circumstance. Um, I guess another. <clears throat> question that, um, you know, a lot of funds really needed to have a positive answer to in order to work effectively was, you know, whether an asset sale out of an opportunity fund could qualify for the exemption after a 10-year hold. 
um, you know, the statute, at least some people read the statute as saying you need to sell the equity interest in an opportunity fund, which which is pretty rare in most funds, real estate investment funds and private equity type funds or any funds. So, so how does that work under the proposed regs? Sure, so the proposed regs intend to allow a disposition of assets. Um, it's done by an election, and this is one of the areas where um, you know there's clearly an intent to be taxpayer friendly and make this workable. But what they did in the proposed regulations was allow the qualified opportunity fund to dispose of its assets. And if you've been on our prior calls, you've probably heard us talking about two-tier structures a lot because there are some really important benefits that you get in terms of qualification um, year to year by using a two-tier structure. The regulations didn't offer an exit strategy down at that lower tier. So effectively, if the QOF owns a joint venture that owns the real estate or the, operates the business, and then that joint venture entity is the one that sells the assets, the election doesn't drop down, doesn't allow you to go down a tier to pass through the exemption. So, you know, that's something that, you know, likely the bar will be commenting on and, and um, it's something that hopefully will be changing to facilitate more commercially practical uh, results. But in the interim, there's careful structuring considerations that need to go into uh, a fund that has, especially a fund that has multiple assets where they might be held in a lower tier entity. Yeah, so so you can't do an asset deal at, you know, at a subsidiary level, but you can do, you know, an equity deal, which is kind of like an asset deal as a fund, right? And, right? and that's important, right? Even that, because, you know, if if that rule didn't exist, then a fund would basically have to have to exit by selling its entire portfolio together, whereas now it can sell piecemeal investments, you know, on an equity uh, on an equity basis, but but on an asset by asset basis. Right. So there, has, there has to be at this point. There still has to be some segregation of assets in lower tier entities for this to work practically. Yeah. Yeah. It's more like a fund that has portfolio investments into into lower tier subsidiaries than for um, uh, a fund that that directly holds assets, but but most funds are going to be structured like that anyway. Mm -hmm. um, and then I guess relatedly, you know, uh, some um, investors and, and sponsors were were clamoring for you know uh, the ability to um, roll over or exchange investments in opportunity funds in the interim, right? Because one of the concerns is that you know. A 10-year hold in order to uh, receive the capital gains exemption on an exit is a long time, and, and you know beyond the lifespan or beyond the investment um, timing of most funds. So, so how how is that handled generally in the proposed regs? Sure. So, if you sell an asset, say if the QOF sells an asset after say five years of holding it. Um, you're, you're not going to be able to make that election that I just talked about because you haven't held your interest long enough to meet that 10-year holding period. 
but the QoS itself can take that cash and have it and treat that cash as a good asset for 12 months and then roll it over into another QoS investment. Now, that that's helpful, but if it's just doing that, it will still trigger gains. The, um, the regulations make it clear that there's no provision unless you're in Section 1031 to or, or, or some other non-recognition provision. But there's no provision specific to the QOF rules that allows essentially a deferral or rollover of that gain within the fund during that 10-year period. Yeah, so, so you can't avoid tax in the interim, but what you theoretically can do is not disqualify your opportunity fund as an opportunity fund. And you can start a new 10-year hold, you know, if, if you reinvest into new opportunity zone property um, as well. And, and like you said, in the interim, it's not a bad asset. Um, so, and, and I guess it's important to say, you know, even though the proposed regs don't eliminate tax on that interim transaction right now, um, the government said pretty clearly they, they want to be able to give investors that um, that opportunity, but they don't read the statute that broadly. So, you know, they're asking, you know, tax advisors to help them find arguments so that, you know, by the time the final regulations roll around, they may be able to broaden it and, and you know, avoid tax on those interim transactions. We'll see whether that actually happens, but I only say that because, you know, even though that's a no right now, um, there's a possibility that, that the rules will become a little bit more lenient. Um, by the time they're finalized. All right, and then I guess just uh, diving in a little bit into some of the nuance and, and the uh, esoteric um, portions of the Opportunity Zone rules, you know, the big, the big requirement, as, as we've discussed um, at a 30,000-foot level, uh, to be an Opportunity uh, Fund is to have, you know, 90% by average during certain dates of the assets in the business um, or the assets in the fund, I should say, comprised of, you know, either qualified opportunities on business property or partnership or corporate, uh, corporate stock interests in lower tier subsidiaries that have substantially all of their assets in um, oppor opportunities on business, qualified opportunities on business. So, you know, and, and there's also requirements for, you know, in order to kind of for the government to ensure that these um, these funds are doing, you know, investment and business-like activity in these zones. There's other requirements that say more than 50% of the gross income from uh, an opportunity zone business needs to um, be comprised of active trade or business income, you know, derived from the opportunity zone. So I started the call by saying, you know, they put some more meat on the bones as to what these um, rules actually mean in practice. And, you know, I guess I should say generally they're, they're pretty simple um, and they're also pretty taxpayer friendly. But, you know, you kind of have to understand these rules and, and this is re really where, you know, a lot of the value of a good tax advisor, you know, taking a look at the balance sheet, taking a look at the income statement and helping to plan for, you know, keeping um, an opportunity fund in compliance where, where, we, really, where we really shine on that. Um, so I guess starting with 
some of the asset tests. Again, 90% of an, an opportunity fund's assets need to be uh, good assets on, on certain key testing dates. So the government, you know, had previously said in, in the old proposed regs that um, the 90% rule applies at the parent level or at the fund level if it invests into a partnership or a corporation that otherwise qualify. Um, you know, the partnership or corporation needs to have uh, substantially all of its tangible property as good property, which is a 70% rule. So if 70% at the lower tier entity is good property, then the equity interest will be good property at the parent level. Um, but there's, a, there's another issue in terms of kind of, you know, the temporal nature of this, right? So you have to look at the balance sheet, but then you have to look at the property itself um, to say, well, how long has it been used in the zone? Um, the rule is that substantially all of the holding period and substantially all of the use of the property needs to be in the zone. Um, and, you know, for, for uh, real estate transactions, that's obviously pretty simple, right? They don't move around. You build your building. Um, it's either in the zone or it's not. So you would think that, you know, the entire holding period is either going to be uh, within the zone or not. Um, but where this starts to matter is, uh, you know, again, for, for operating businesses, um, for uh, businesses that, you know, start to expand outside of the zone, or for, you know, I guess real estate investments that are tied together with other uh, real estate investments that are not in the zone, which, which is rare, but people want to make that happen. So um, all that kind of uh, background, the rule the government adopts is, is 90%. So substantially all the holding period from a timing perspective means that, you know, 90% of the time, those assets need to be held and used in the zone. So, you know, this starts to um, implicate uh, manufacturing businesses, um, you know, logistics businesses that have, um, you know, assets moving in and out of the zone quite frequently. Um, but there's some, you know, additional kind of uh, leniency there. Um, you know, inventory in transit for maybe a retail business or something like that. Uh, is is going to be seen as a good asset as long as it's you know um, uh, either coming in or going out of the zone. Um, so so the fact that your inventory is you know currently located outside the zone doesn't mean that you you didn't hold it within the zone. Um, and you know unrelated to kind of operating or I shouldn't say just not just related to operating businesses. There's also a nice carve out in the rules for for new investment into a fund. Um, you know, so if an investor comes in on, say, June 29th with a substantial amount of capital and on June 30th the fund has a testing date to meet that 90% test, you know, there was a concern that the cash from the investor would, would be a bad asset and, and not help the fund qualify. So um, the government said, well, you know, that's not really what Congress Congress didn't really mean to attack that type of transaction because you're still investing in the zone. It's just a footfall with your timing. So they give you six months. So new investment into the opportunity fund isn't counted as a bad asset for the first six months as long as it's invested in cash or cash equivalent or some kind of short-term debt instrument uh, with an 18-month or less term um, so that, you know, funds can, can solicit capital and obtain capital on kind of an ongoing basis and don't have to manage um, manage, you know, to, to avoid the, those six-month testing periods, their, their capital raises, which is nice. And that was the response to requests for essentially a ramp-up period. So there's no, at this point, there's no extension to your 180 days to 
contribute the cash, um, the, the form that comes in is giving you some flexibility for the fund to still qualify if the cash has to sit in the fund uh, for a little bit longer, trying to find an investment. Yep. Yep. And then, so so those are some of the rules, you know, on um, the types of assets and, you know, the timing issues with respect to assets that, that the opportunity fund needs to meet. You know, the other side of it, again, is, is uh, in order to be a good business, you know, 50% of the uh, of the income inside the fund or, or the subsidiary needs to come from the conduct of an active trader business. Um, the government was very, again, uh, broad in this respect. You know, they basically said that uh, any business that's a trader business under call, what's called Section 162, which is a tax provision, is a good business for um, opportunity zone purposes. You know, and, and basically that means, um, you know, the types of activities that together generate uh, income given given substantial business activity. So that's very broad. You know, some of the things that, that don't typically meet the Section 162 definition, and the government was very clear about this in the proposed regs, is something like a triple net lease, right? So if an opportunity fund only holds, you know, uh, a triple net lease on a building, um, for those of you who are not in the real estate industry, triple net lease is basically the tenant is responsible for uh, uh, taxes, insurance, maintenance of the building. Um, so it really is just a coupon of rent to the landlord. That that is not going to qualify for this purpose. You really need to, um, you know, have some more uh, active uh, uh, business-like activity in the fund in order to in order to make an active business there. And then, you know, there's other kind of private equity structures where they might invest in, in corporations. Um, and if the corporation isn't a good asset, um, or I'm sorry, if the corporation um, is, is in itself a good asset, then, you know, the holding of the stock might not meet the 162 test. But that's, that's going to be pretty rare. Again, you know, just to, just to summarize this, the active trader business is very, very broad. Most things that you would think of as a business are a business. Um, you know, there's some other stuff, leasing IP or something like that, that might not be a business, but, but you know, most, again, most, most things are businesses. Um, so then once you establish that you have a trader business, you have to do the math, right? 50% of the income needs to come from that trader business inside of a fund. So the government established some pretty simple rules to determine that. Um, you know, particularly, again, you know, real estate, that's going to be very straightforward. But when you start to go into operating businesses, you know, the question becomes, well, I sell inventory outside the zone, you know, or if I have uh, my headquarters in the zone, but I have lots of personnel running around outside the zone, you know, how do I how do I apply that, and how do I determine whether the income is earned in or in outside the zone in those circumstances? Um, so they gave you three, or they gave investors three rules that you know investors can elect to use. Yeah, they're safe harbors, yep. so you can still use facts and circumstances. Right, right. So if you're outside of these three rules, that doesn't mean that you fail. It means that you have to kind of look at a facts and circumstances and, and try to prove up that, you know, um, your income is, is derived from in the zone or a fair amount uh, of your income is derived from the zone within kind of general tax principles. Um, but if you're in with one of these three safe harbors, you don't even need to do that. So, so the first safe harbor is measuring the amount of services by hours of the employees and, and also independent contractors, you know, 1099 personnel that work for the uh, fund or work for the subsidiary within and without without the zone. So, you know, if um, if you have uh, 10 employees, 
you know, eight of them work full-time in the zone and two of them work full-time out the zone in a sales office or, or you know, servicing capacity, then, then you measure their hours and you're going to say, well, more than 50% of the hours are, are you know, uh, derived in the zone, so I qualify. Um, the other safe harbor is also with respect to measuring services, but rather than count hours, you count salary. Um, and again, it includes both employees and independent contractors. So, uh, you know, if you have uh, quite a few employees who are, you know, providing services or making deliveries or something outside the zone, but, you know, uh, you have well-compensated employees within the zone, you might, you might be able to qualify under that test, even if you want to, you know, qualify if you just measured uh, hours. And then finally, you know, the third safe harbor is um, a little bit more nebulous, but you know, but thinks of really uh, the types of businesses that are that are kind of a headquarters. So um, the rule there is if the tangible property um, located in the zone and you know the upper level management located in the zone are necessary to generate income, um, then then uh, then you'll qualify for generating you know the income derived from those those folks and that and that tangible property as as good active in the zone income. And the example in the proposed reg there is is like a landscaping business, right? The headquarters, um, the uh, the equipment is probably stored within the zone. You know, the CEO of the business is in the zone. All the back office functionnel, uh, back office uh, personnel, excuse me. Um, but you know, there's um, teams out outside of the zone. You know, every single day, actually providing services. But you know, those teams are um, relying upon the people. You know, being the management team, and you know the the storage of the equipment within the zone, so so um, you know their their services will will qualify. Um, and the same is true of you know even though it's not a landscape, uh, it's not the example in the proposed reg. Something like you know a store that ships outside the zone, right? It's it's you know it's equipment, it's manu it's, uh, it's it's real estate, it's it's management team is all inside the zone, so. The fact that it's selling to customers outside the zone and some of its inventory is going to, you know, by its very nature, be outside the zone is, is not just qualifying either. And then again, if you fail any of those three safe harbors, you really get it back in circumstances. Um, and it becomes, you know, really important again to kind of work with your tax advisor on, on fine-tuning those, um, you know, your, your, your income tests and your asset tests so that you can meet those, those uh, certifications. Um, we're already running late. Uh, We'll probably talk for a few more minutes, and we have a couple of questions. But again, just to highlight, um, we'll probably uh, we're going to circle back to the proposed regs on more of some of the discrete issues um, on on future calls. So look for our um, invitations to those calls if if you have to jump. And we also distribute our call, um, you know, a recording of our call um, afterwards. So so we're happy to send that. So if anybody has to go, you know, again, we'll talk for a few more minutes. But um, but please circle back and, and uh, look for our recording so that you can stay in the loop. Um, I guess we ought to talk about defining original use, right? So, so I guess, you know, just to kind of situate, um, Layla, can you talk about why original use is important? Sure. So in order to qualify, in order for the property to be essentially a good asset, there's a requirement that it be original use 
the original use of the property or that it be substantially improved. And we've talked a lot about substantial improvement before because the first set of regulations gave us some guidance specific to that. This set of regulations focused on the original use requirement and they said that the original use is when property is first placed in service in the zone and placed in service is for depreciation purposes. So when the property is you know, ready and, and now able to be used, you can start depreciating it. That's the same time when you would treat it as the original use. And that comes into play you know, if you're talking about acquiring something that is newly built, um, you would want to make sure that the person that you, the, the business or the developer, whoever you're acquiring that property from, has not already been placed in service by that, by the seller. So um, that will be important, especially for something like new construction, where you're certainly not going to be improving it beyond that, at least not in a substantial way. Um, another interesting give that Treasury had for us here was if property has been vacant for five years, there's some allowance there, um, unless you know you're doing it abusively and and you have you own the property and in a related entity and sat on it for five years, you're you're going to be able to buy property from an unrelated person that's been vacant for five years and meet the original use test, which means you would not have to substantially improve that property. Now, I'm not sure how often a property that's been vacant for that long a time wouldn't need to be substantially improved, but I, I suppose there, there might be circumstances where uh, some improvement is needed, but, but not enough to be considered substantial under the uh, what about, requirement. what about land, though? Can you treat land that's been vacant for five years as, as good property? If Well, land is generally treated as good property under the rules. So um, as long as the land is used in the business, then the land will be good property, subject to some limitations for agricultural use of land that doesn't really differ from the prior agricultural use of land, although I haven't had that one come up yet as a concern. Um, for the most part, land cannot be original use because it's been here for a long time. It's been around a while. Um, and they have, they told us in the last round that it does not need to be substantially improved. And now they've made it clear that they're treating it as a good asset. And as long as it's being used in the business, it, it'll be good. Right, and that uh, we we got a question on that as well. Um, I'm still looking for an answer to to vacant land qualifying in the QOF. Do you if you buy land for a hundred thousand dollars, do you need to put in a hundred thousand dollars of improvements within thirty months, thirty one months, excuse me, to qualify? So the answer to that is no, you don't. But you have to use the land. You can't just sit on that for investment. So any, if you're if you're owning property for investment and not in a trade or business, you're not going to qualify. Right, and you also, you know, again, you need to meet those income tests, right? So if the land isn't generating a return, or even if the land is generating a return, you know, 50% of the income from that needs to be uh, from an active trader business located within the zone. So, you know, how, how likely it is that, that somebody would just buy land and sit on it and meet the income tests is, is probably pretty small. 
maybe operating a parking lot, but yeah. Yeah. That, there, there may be some room for that to work. Um, okay, all right, so yeah, so those, those original use uh, rules, I think, are, you know, flexible and helpful. Um, so it, it's nice that the government was, was helpful in that respect, too. Again, you got I think that the general takeaway that I got from, from the proposed regs um, is that the government is very flexible, very, very generous and lenient on interpreting these rules to make funds work. But, you know, it still requires a very close look by somebody who understands these rules, you know, on the business plan, the ongoing balance sheet, and, and the ongoing kind of P&L or income statement to, to make sure it's going to qualify and, you know, take into account, obviously, changes in the business and changes in the assets that, that are going to take place over 10 years. Um, I guess just one, one thing I did want to talk about, you know, with respect to good property, um, but, you know, this is a big topic that we'll probably touch on later as well in, in later calls, is, is leased property, right? You know, there was a question kind of how uh, leased property works in these rules, um, you know, whether it can qualify at all, at, at all or whether um, it qualifies as tangible property or, or intangible property. And, and the good news is, you know, the government was, in, in my view, you know, pretty creative and took a very taxpayer-friendly ar uh, argument to, to create a very helpful rule here. Um, the big takeaway is that, you know, leased property is good property, right? So if you lease tangible property from um, another uh, uh, owner of the property um, and, and use it in your trade or business, it's, it's good property. And that's true even if the leased property, you know, is not subject to original use or substantial improvement by the tenant, um, which creates kind of a lot of opportunities, right? Um, for property that otherwise might not qualify, you know, if if it's leased to um, somebody else, then then it then it will qualify. Um, you know, there's there's definitely rules in terms of what type of leased property work. You know, the lease has to be entered into after 2017. Substantially all that same rule with, with the 90% rule of the use of the leased property has to take place in the zone. Um, you know, it has to be a market rate lease, which uh, will, you know, in many circumstances probably require an appraisal to, to support that. Um, so there's rules to kind of make sure that, you know, the leased property is, is bona fide, you know, leased property. Um, and there's some other rules as well, but, you know, the, the big takeaway is that you can lease property and um, and have it qualify as good tangible property in the zone. And something that's interesting about that is they give methods for valuing a lease. And one of the methods, um, if, if you're not using um, a, a book valuation method, is to um, do the present value of all of the payments under the lease, which if the lease property was entered into, if the lease for the lease property was entered into after the date Dustin mentioned, uh, you know, after the end of 2017, then that's great that it's got a high value because it's a good asset. But if you have an old lease, now you have an asset with a pretty high value um, that's a bad asset. Yeah, yeah, no, the, to make a leasing structure work is going to require, you know, um, some pretty close analysis and understanding of, of the market rate lease rules and things like that. But, but the good news is that it, is that it works. Um, and there was also talk, you know, of, well, if I lease land from an Indian tribe, which I 
cannot buy the land from or, um, you know, from the federal government or something to that effect, um, you know, these, these rules make transactions that otherwise wouldn't work, they make them work. Um, and I guess even going one step further, and this is where a lot of planning would get really, really interesting, is, you know, not only can you lease property and you don't have to put it to uh, substantial improvement or original use, um, but you can release, you can lease party, excuse me, from a related party. So one of the concerns, or one of the complaints, I guess, that, that we heard quite frequently from um, clients and friends was, you know, I had already invested in an opportunity zone before 2017, and these rules say that only property acquired after 2017 can qualify. Um, so under this leasing structure, you know, what what in, somebody in that situation could do is set up a new opportunity fund and and lease the property from um, from you know the actual owner entity and you know that the lease and the investment in the opportunity fund becomes you know eligible for opportunity fund tax benefits um, the caveat there is that again the lease itself like so if you lease land or if you lease a building um, you don't have to put it uh, you don't have to satisfy original use or substantial improvement but but the opportunity fund or the tenant in that example needs to uh, invest at least as much um, capital into um, tangible property that does qualify for opportunity zone benefits um, as as it does when it when it values the lease. So if you do that present value test that Leila mentioned, or you look at your gap balance sheet and say the lease is you know hundred dollars of, of value, then um, the tenant needs to invest you know at least hundred dollars into either improving the leased property or you know other property. Um, as long as it's kind of tied, um, you know, to the same business and the same use as as the leased property. So there's a ton of flexibility there, and really, I think reinvigorate those types of transactions that seemed undoable um, because the property was owned prior to 2017. And even broader than that, you know, it just it allows a level of, of planning and, and flexibility that that allows transactions to happen that otherwise you know might be infeasible. So it's a really nice rule. And, and any leasehold improvements are also treated as good property. Those are treated as original use property. Yeah, yeah. So those will be good assets for the tax. Yeah. Um, okay, we have one more uh, question today. Um, it is, uh, let's see, um, we formed an opportunity fund this January, so we will need to file form 8996 next year. Our investors invested into the fund in the interim. So, what do they need to do from a tax compliance perspective? Um, so, the 8996, for those who don't know, is the form uh, that an opportunity fund itself files with the IRS every year to certify. Um, well, a couple of things. First, to certify at the start date of the fund, and then second, to certify that you know it meets this 90% test and the 50% active income test and all the tests required to be an opportunity fund. Um, on those on those testing dates every year, so it's an it's an opportunity fund level uh, filing. Um, what an investor does who who wants to roll over their capital gains um, into an opportunity fund is um, they don't file the 8996. They file uh, a form 8949, which is like the general um, form that they would file to report their capital gains to the IRS. And they would do a separate line item for anything that they knew they wanted to defer under the opportunity zone rules, and um, you know identify the the capital gain that they're rolling over. 
So they can do that, you know, even, even I guess the question is if the investor is rolling over a 2018 capital gain into an opportunity fund that was formed in 2019 but won't file its 8996 until, you know, 2020 for its 2019 tax year, um, the investor still, still does all the same things. There will be kind of a timing mismatch, um, you know, where the government won't, won't be able to identify for a little while which opportunity fund the investor invested in, but, you know, uh, it'll get trued up by the time the government would otherwise take a look at that. So it's really not a problem, but, you know, again, the investor would look at the 8949 and fill that out appropriately. Um, that's it. Uh, we are really excited about, you know, we've been getting a lot of uh, renewed attention given how flexible and workable these rules are on the opportunity funds. So we're happy to answer any questions that anybody has offline. Um, we'll circulate the recording of this call. Uh, please check out our client alerts, and uh, we hope to hear or we hope to talk to you all soon. Thanks a lot. Mm -hmm.